or my outline that, that I wrote in with red pen. One of you probably has it right now because mine is blank. That means I gave away <laughs> the wrong one. I love it. If you would, please, in your Bibles, though, uh, turn to Exodus chapter 25. We have, you know, just over the past months, this is, uh, by the way, the fifty number 51 in our series on Exodus, so almost a year's worth of sermons in Exodus. Uh, but today's sermon will be different. There it is, my outline. Uh, today's sermon will be different in that uh, the tabernacle, the instructions for building it, uh, the instructions for building the furniture in it, the decorations in it, uh, the priesthood, their garments and their functions, that will cover um, the 12 of the remaining chapters uh, in Exodus. There's only a short interlude um, beginning in chapter 32 of the golden calf, that, uh, but otherwise that is what the book of Exodus is about, is uh, the tabernacle, the instructions for it, and uh, the actual building of it. And so I, I feel no compulsion to take it real slow through all of this. Um, just that's, This is where I, I'm at on it. How I feel led is, is that we can really look at this as one big uh, categorical thing, both the instructions to build and the, the building. Um, but today also, as, as Douglas mentioned earlier, is uh, that the, the New Testament actually has a great deal to say about this tabernacle, about the tabernacle that, that Moses and the Israelites built while they were in the wilderness. And so here is kind of what happens when you look at the New Testament. I'll, I'll kind of put it in question form. What if I told you that the true tabernacle, the dwelling place of God, was a present reality that you could visit today? Not only today, but right now, if you wanted to. Now, if you were here uh, last week and the week before, when we first started talking about the tabernacle, you would say, well, of course, now that there is no earthly tent, we as Christians are the tabernacle or the temple of God because we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And that is true. Uh, the Bible does call us the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the dwelling place of God in that sense, but that's not the only tabernacle or dwelling of God that the Bible talks about. What we will see today is that there is uh, right now currently another tabernacle other than Christians where God in all of his glory dwells and you can go visit and commune with God today or right now if you wanted to. But knowing that, knowing that there is a, a tabernacle where God's glory dwells, his presence dwells uh, fully, would you want to go there? Would you currently feel welcome and accepted if you were to step into the throne room of God, the holy of holies? Or would you feel like an unwelcome intruder treading on holy ground Th this is what we're gonna have to study today we're gonna have to understand it of like okay so there there, there is currently a, a tabernacle where god and his glory dwells and where christ is but i don't know that i'm worthy to go in there i i, I don't i don't know that, that that's a place that i would feel comfortable i feel like i they god be looking down his nose at me doing that sound and wagging his finger you know like th that's kind of how a lot of us feel and I will tell you I have been there and when I say I've been there I don't mean like one time in my Christian life I've been there I mean I have been there a lot of times in my Christian life times that that I felt so inadequate like such a failure like such a sinner that there's no way I could go into God's presence and so we go into this dumb cycle of trying to clean ourselves up and strengthen ourselves and make ourselves worthy to enter God's presence. But the problem is we can't clean ourselves up and we can't strengthen ourselves. Only God in his presence can do that. And so it's just a very bad cycle we get in. We just go deeper and deeper into despair, staying away from God's blessed presence and communion with him. And so that's what we're going to look at today is, is not only the, the tabernacle, um, 
but we want to also look at the symbolism of the tabernacle. That the, the earthly tabernacle was also a symbol for something else. I, I want to say this before we even get going, because symbolism, depending on what you know, proclivity you have, might have a bad name. Some of you might say, no, everything in the Bible is a symbol. You know, Adam, he's just a symbol. You know, like, but that, that's not the way uh, that I want to talk about this. I just want to give you a couple of guiding principles for how to understand symbolism and how to think about it. The, the first one is this. Uh, the Bible is filled with a great deal of parallelism uh, and, and uh, continuity and, and repetition and patterns that, that you can look at, at the book of Genesis, then you can look at something in the book of like Acts, and you can say, wow, that's really similar, how what Joseph did over here is similar to, to what Jesus did over here, or, you know, you can, the Bible is filled with things like that, or you might even see it in the, the imagery used in the Bible. You could say, Wow, that's, that's so cool. You know, Jesus was born in a manger, and that was maybe a, a wooden, uh, you know, manger that he's laid in. And then he ended his life on a cross, and, you know, we can see these things. And, and I would say there is a, a beauty to those things. I think it shows the, the, the continuity in the mind of God, that he does follow patterns and characteristics, that there is a, a symmetry to what God does, and it is beautiful within the plan of redemption. But, but I, I want to say this, and I just want to uh, you know, clarify this. We should be careful when we say God made this a type. You know, um, we should be careful saying that Judas was a type of something or you know, just anything like that. We, we should be careful. It's okay if we see the connections, see the parallels, see the analogies, um, but, but we, we shouldn't step so far as to put words or ideas in God's mouth or mind. And so what I mean is um, we can have the most confidence, we can speak with the most confidence, and we can shape our lives, you know, change our lives with the most confidence when the Bible tells us that something is a symbol. That is when you can run with it and keep running uh, when, when the Bible says this was a reality uh, over here, but it was also a symbol of something else, we can say, okay, I'm going to give my time and attention, my study, I'm going to start to shape my life off of that. I'll give you just uh, one example that, that may be helpful. Um, in, in Romans chapter 5, it tells us that Adam was a type of Christ. You say, Okay, I, I never thought of Adam as a type. He, now, Adam was a very real historical person, the very first one, in fact. Adam was a real historical person. And so Romans 5, again, you'd have to read it. I don't want to go too in depth here, tells us that, that Adam was a type of Christ, that God was placing a clear pattern for what Christ would be. And so we should give our attention to that. And so, you know, by studying Romans, you'd see, okay, Adam was a representative head of humanity. And, and, and the, the actions of Adam had an enduring effect on all who would come after him, that on all who would be uh, his children, you could say. Um, you know, he, he sinned, therefore we all sinned with him. That's, that's uh, you know, the sin nature that we all carry. We have inherited through Adam, it has been, uh, in a sense, imputed to us, and then we now live out of that sin nature. And so that's what Adam did. He's a representative head. But Christ, on the other hand, in the same way, was a representative head. Because what good is it to us if Jesus lived a perfect life and then died uh, 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 this, you know, sinless death? What good is that to us? Like, I didn't live a perfect life. My, my sins weren't paid for by me. And so we say, okay, Adam was a type of Christ, and, and Adam was a representative head, and his actions had implications for the future of all those who would come after him. And so we say, okay, Christ, because Romans tells us explicitly that Adam was a type, we can say, okay, Christ, like Adam, is not just a man. He is a representative head, and his actions, his sinless life, his work on the cross has 
implications, not only for our nature, in Christ we receive a new nature, right? We're a new creation, and it changes our future actions. We begin to live out of that new nature, just as we did with Adam. So I know that was a long one. I hope some of you that was new for. Um, I was thinking that, I'm like, wouldn't that be fun if they learned something out of an aside? Uh, But this is what we have with the tabernacle, is I want to tell you, we can have full confidence as we pursue it to say, okay, the Bible tells us that this is a type. The Bible tells us that this is a type, and so we can have full confidence. We can pursue it. We can let it have implications on our everyday lives because it's not just, oh, I see a parallel, an analogy. It's like, no, God says, I did this so that you would see uh, that this is a type. Now, here's something that we also need to do uh, when we see types in the Bible. Again, I, this is hermeneutics. This is how to study the Bible uh, correctly. When God gives us a type, there are two things we are supposed to do with it. First, we look at the similarities, right? Okay, Adam was a representative head, with, and his actions had implications. Christ was a representative head. His actions had implications. So we look at the similarities, and it helps us to have a frame of reference for the reality. So Adam being a representative head gives us a frame of reference for what Christ would come and be one day. But it's not only the similarities that God wants us to learn from, that God wants us to meditate on, to be changed by. It's also the differences. See, the the similarities give us a frame of reference But the differences give us a great deal of appreciation for the reality. The the shadow helps us to appreciate the substance of what God was pointing to by the differences. And so, let's do it with Adam. Okay, Adam was a representative head. Christ was a representative head. What was different about them? Well, one sinned and brought all of mankind down. He brought death into this world, corruption into this world, hopelessness into this world. That was Adam's uh, accomplishment as a representative head. Christ, on the other hand, the God-man Jesus Christ, did not inherit that sin nature, by the way. That's, that's uh, him, part of him being the God-man. He, he has a human nature, but not sin nature. So that's a difference. That's a big difference. And then he never sinned. Tempted and tried as he was, he never sinned. Therefore, another difference, you have sinful, sinless. You have the implications is death, correction, uh, corruption, hopelessness. But with Christ comes life, salvation, cleansing. All, all, so do you see how seeing the differences actually helps us to appreciate Christ even more than the similarities. The similarities give us a frame of reference for understanding it, but it's those differences that help us to say, oh, God, this is your grand plan of redemption. I I love it. I want to study. I want to meditate. it. I want my heart to be melted and transformed by it. And that is what we're going to see with the tabernacle. I haven't even given you any verses yet, but um, this, this is where we're going. The first thing I want you to see So that you know where we're going. Oh, man. Where's my number one? My number one's gone. Oh, no. Uh, The tabernacle was an earthly copy of a heavenly reality. The tabernacle, the earthly one that, that Moses and Israel made, was an earthly copy of a heavenly reality. We see this uh, in a couple of places. I would say that we see this in part uh, in, in Exodus, and I'll, I'll try to explain this. Exodus chapter 25, verse 40. This is Exodus 25, verse 40. God says this, And see that you make them, this is uh, the, the tabernacle and all its furniture, that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown to you on the mountain. So God is telling him, Now, don't you go getting creative on this tabernacle thing. I'm telling you in great detail what this thing is supposed to look like. And he says, make sure you make them after the pattern for them. 
I, I don't have, this is not the way I have it, but um, I want to show you this. Exodus 25, uh, verse 9, said the same thing, very similarly. <clears throat> exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, so you shall make it. I put the second pattern up there in brackets because in the Hebrew it's there both times. In the English they've uh, removed the second uh, mention of the pattern. But the pattern is a very important word in this verse because of this. When we think of pattern, we say, okay, God's giving him instructions, directions for how to build the tabernacle. But that is not what the Hebrew word for pattern means. The Hebrew word for pattern, I looked it up, I looked through every use of this word, <clears throat> excuse me, never means directions for making something original. Never once is it used for just mere directions of, hey, here's a blueprint, make, make this uh, original building. It is always, every single time this Hebrew word is used, it is always used for making a copy or a replica of something else. Every single time it is a copy. It is uh, one time a king goes to another land and he sees an altar there and he says, I want to make another altar after that pattern. He wants to make a copy. Another time it's used of idols. They made, they made their idols after the pattern of animals and humans. Like, it's, so it's based off of things that already exist. Does that make sense? So in the mind of Moses, he would have heard not pattern like just a blueprint he would have heard make a replica make a copy uh, as i have shown you according to the, this copy and this is exactly what we see the author of hebrews pick up and he quotes uh exodus 25 verse 40 so at the top of your screen you see exodus 25 verse 40 um see that you make them after the pattern for them which is being shown you on the ma uh, mountain Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, and then verse 5, says this, We have such a high priest, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent <clears throat> that the Lord set up, not man. They serve a copy, they, the, the tabernacle and all its furnishings and priesthood, they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So, so the author of Hebrews, inspired by the Holy Spirit and knowing Hebrew, um, understood what that word pattern meant. He said, this wasn't an original that, that Moses and Israel were making. They were making a copy of a heavenly reality. Now, I believe, you know, the Holy Spirit number one, assured that this was correct, but this is logical even. There had never up to this point been a dwelling place of God on earth, a tabernacle. I mean, you could ar argue that the Garden of Eden was the dwelling place of God. You know, anyways, um, but there was never like this, this uh, a structure. And so when God says, here, make a replica, follow this pattern uh, to make a copy, to make a replica, and there has never been one on earth, where are they supposed to suppose that the original is? If it's not earth, it has to be in heaven. And so it's even just logical uh, by, again, if you understand that, that Hebrew word, and then if you don't understand it, you read Hebrews, <laughs> and it tells us this is a copy and a shadow of a heavenly reality. This is a tent that was set up by the Lord, not by man. Man set up the, the earthly tabernacle, Moses and um, I can't remember the workers' names, Aholiab and Bezalel, I don't know how to pronounce them, uh, the workers. Uh, that man made that, but there was, a there, there was an original, you might say, a heavenly reality there. And so this is what we need to, to recognize is the tabernacle was a type, not just analogous, not just similar, not just, hey, there's some parallels here. It is a God-given type god says the original i have erected in heaven it was made uh, by god not by man but i want you to make an earthly type a copy of what i have erected in heaven so th this is this is kind of where we're going and we're saying okay if god gives a type then he wants us to understand 
heavenly realities better, right? Just like he uh, showed us that Adam was a type of Christ, like he, he wants us to understand that the tabernacle, the earthly tabernacle was a type of heavenly tabernacle. It was helping us to see reality. And so I, I, I do want to, before we get into this, we need to make sure we understand, okay, in order to understand the reality, we have to understand the type, right? You have to understand um, <laughs> the copy if you want to understand the original, if you can't see it clearly. You need that frame of reference. And so I do want to show you quickly, you guys have probably all seen these things, uh, but I want to show you quickly what the tabernacle was to look like. I, I encourage you to read through Exodus uh, chapters 25 and following to see all of this. Uh, but, you know, for, for, for time's sake, here is what you would ultimately end up with, something very similar to this um, if you were to, to study the rest of Exodus and put all the pieces together. Uh, you have the outer area there, the uh, outer curtain. Uh, that is called the Court of the Tabernacle. Um, it is about 150 feet long, or vertical as you'd see it, and 75 feet wide. Uh, for frame of reference, that's about half the size of a football field. So a pretty big uh, structure there uh, when you have the, the courtyard of the tabernacle. This is where all Israelites were allowed to come in. They could come in through that courtyard entrance, come past that curtain, as long as they were ritually clean, uh, ceremonially clean. They could uh, go into there. <clears throat> After you first walk into that entrance gate, you would first approach the bronze altar. This is a 7.5 foot, 7.5 foot wide, 4.5 foot tall altar where sacrifices would have been made. Is again, uh, covered in bronze, acacia wood covered in bronze, and the sacrifices were, were made there. And so the people were able to uh, enter that far, and the priests uh, would, would make the sacrifices on that altar. The priests would come out to them, and uh, they'd offer their animal, and the, the sacrifices would be made. Past that uh, on the screen, you see uh, the bronze basin. This is basically just a big wash basin uh, that, that was there in between the altar and uh, the, the actual tabernacle building. And so the, the purpose of this was, number one, the, for the priests to do their ritual washing. They had to do ritual washings. And, and I kind of want to mention on a practical note that you have the altar uh, there. What, that's not going to be a clean business. I, I don't want to go in great detail, but blood is shed, animals are burned, ashes are produced. And so... Um, a wash basin is a very good idea, and, and they certainly needed it for practical reasons, but also for ritual cleansing before they could enter the uh, tabernacle building there. Now, the tabernacle building uh, is, is kind of broken up into two units there, uh, but the whole thing there was about 45 feet long by 15 feet wide. And that, that doesn't sound big, but it's pretty big once you realize that only priests were allowed to go that far. So the Israelites could come into the courtyard if they were ritually uh, clean, ceremonially clean, um, but they could go no further uh, unless they were a priest. They could not go past the curtain into that first room that's known as the Holy of Holies, and they certainly could not go into, uh, sorry, not the Holy of Holies, they, the first room, which is the holy place, and they certainly could not go into the Holy of Holies past that so we'll kind of blow this up a little bit. You have the, the little picture of the priest there. I do want to point him out because if you read um, the, about the, the garments that the priests were to wear, that's pretty accurate. They, they were not boring drab robes that they were wearing. They were bright, colorful, ornate. We're talking uh, gold is on the, uh, on, them, on the breastplate that they would wear. There you have precious stones on them from head to toe covered in costly um, costly uh, materials and uh, ornate things were woven into uh, their robe and just all sorts of things. Pomegranates hanging from the bottom of the robe as well as golden bells hanging from the bottom of the robe. He has a turban on his head with what they call a gold crown with inscribed on it is holy to the Lord. I mean, th these guys, uh, the Bible even says, I want to say uh, chapter 28 or 29, he says, Make them like this for, for beauty and for glory. Like, 
this this is supposed to be magnificently beautiful the way that the priests were to look, especially the high priest. But as a priest, you're allowed to enter through that first veil there into the holy place. When, if he were to first enter from where he's standing, he would trip over the bread of the presence. That's the table of the bread of the presence. You can see there on sort of the back wall there um, <clears throat> where that priest would enter in. This would have 12 loaves of bread on it, representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And um, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, and the Bible doesn't describe this, but if you were to see a parallel here, I think of them on Mount Sinai where the representative heads went on there and they ate in the presence of God. I think that's what you have signified there is this, this bread of the presence is uh, signifying like this communion with God, e- eating in his presence. Um, the, what you see on the other side of the room, though, is the golden lampstand. You have the, the seven uh, oil lamps going up, and this is uh, made of, of, of pure gold. And all through this lampstand, this very big golden lampstand, uh, it actually looks like a blossoming almond tree. And God gives exact specifications for what this is supposed to look like. The almond tree, by the way, uh, in that climate would have been the first tree to blossom, the first tree to blossom. I don't know if that has significance, but I figured I would pass it on to you. Uh, but So you have this sort of tree um, uh, land lamp in there. <coughs> Past that, before you get to the next veil, you have the altar for incense. This is a golden altar for incense, and this is where a a special mixture of oil and spices would be concocted, and God gives exact specifications, and it would be offered up as a fragrant incense, a fragrant aroma to God on that altar. They would burn incense there. Uh, Occasionally, blood would be sprinkled on it, but only uh, once it... Well, I guess there was the cleansing of it, but then on the Day of Atonement as well. Um, So those are the items in the holy place. Then if you were to pass through, (coughs) excuse me, if you were to pass through that very next veil, you are in the holy of holies. This is where God's presence visibly dwelled among the people of Israel. This is known as the Shekinah glory. It's a light. It is a blazing light. That would be in this room, the Holy of Holies, signifying the presence of God. And so I, I, I want to mention here, once again, the normal people, if they were ritually, ceremonially clean, they could come into the courtyard, but they could not go into the holy place. If you were a priest and you had done all your cleansings and washings and things like that, you could enter the Holy of Holies. But n- you, not just any priest could enter, uh, I keep saying them backwards, They could enter the holy place, but they could not enter the holy of holies is where I'm going. Only the high priest could enter the holy of holies and him only once a year on the day of atonement. And what you have when when that priest would walk in there after a great deal of preparation to go in, the high priest would go in there once a year and you have on the back wall there the Ark of the Covenant. I'll give you a blown up representation of that. Um... You know, when I say ark, you, you might wonder, well, where, where's Noah and all the animals? Ark just means box, okay? The word ark. I know you had the ark uh, back in Genesis. It was a big box boat. That's, that's really all that it's teaching us. And so we have within the Holy of Holies a golden box, acacia wood overlaid with pure gold, and that is called the Ark of the Covenant. In the Ark of the Covenant, according to these chapters that, that we're, we're doing an overview of, they were to put in the, the law of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. So they were supposed to put the Ten Commandments, the law that God had given uh, Israel, uh, or at least you know the, the moral law God had given Israel uh, on Mount Sinai, was to be put into that Ark of the Covenant. Then on top of that, what you see there is that cover with uh, the, the angelic figures on it. That is called the mercy seat. This is the, the mercy seat. And, and that really was, uh, as far as uh, the box goes, a cover for the ark. And you have on top of that, again, this is wood overlaid with, with, uh, with pure gold. Then you have these angels, cherubim. They're, they're called, they're again, uh, an angelic figure that we, that we see elsewhere in the Bible in, in heaven. 
They, they are on top of it, facing one another, and their wings are touching. And so, uh, the, the, you know, I didn't want to put anything uh, for the picture, but like that is where the Shekinah glory would be. It was right there over the mercy seat, in between uh, the angels. That is where the, the, the focal point of God's visible presence uh, would be amongst his people. And so th- these are, are what we have here um, within the tabernacle. Um, th- this is kind of the whole layout. I, I need you to understand that because we need to understand the, the copy in order to understand the original. And But what we want to do now, what do I got here? No. What we want to do now, though, is look at the similarities, right? So I've told you objectively, here what, what, here's what the was, tabernacle was made of, you know, made up of the tabernacle, its furniture, uh, all these things, the priesthood and, and the sacrifices they would offer. Um, so we need to see symbolic similarities to the heavenly reality. We, we want to have a frame of reference for this heavenly tabernacle, its furniture, and its functions, its priesthood, its sacrifice. We need to uh, have this frame of reference. And so I want to give you just some categories of thought that, again, these chapters make uh, very clear is going on. I'll, I'll, I'll show you. The first category we see is that the curtains of the tabernacle taught and still teach us today that sin causes separation from God. That, that is the, the idea behind these curtains. Your sin has caused a separation between you and your God. We have that there uh, in, in, in um, Isaiah. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. That is what happens when you sin against a holy God. You can no longer be in his presence. It causes separation. And that is what's going on with all these many curtains. You have the courtyard curtains. Then you have the holy place curtains that you could not pass through unless you're a priest. Then beyond that, you have the holy of holies, just the high priest, just one day a year. He could enter there. Sin caused a separation because God is holy. In addition to that, that's, that's our first parallel, our first similarity we need to grasp. And I mean, this is still true today of the heavenly tabernacle. Our sin has caused a separation. That's what the curtains were depicting. The next thing we need to understand, because there is this Ark of the Covenant and the Ten Commandments, right? You have the Ark of the Covenant with the Ten Commandments in it. That's no uh, accident. That's no coincidence. That was to teach us that sin deserved punishment. So you have the, 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 the seat of God, the throne of God, and there on the, in the throne of God is the Ten Commandments, the law by which Israel would be judged. And that's, that's, that's what is being taught by this Ark of the Covenant what, containing the Ten Commandments is that sin will not go unpunished because God is a holy, just God. And this is still a present reality, friends. This is not just an old, archaic Israelite thing. In fact, you go all the way to the end of history, and you see in Revelation uh, 20, verse 12, uh, John says, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The throne, this is the Ark of the Covenant that we are talking about here. Before the throne, and books were opened, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Sin deserves punishment. God does not just arbitrarily punish people. No, he, he says, here is my law. Here is the way you have lived your life. And because I am a just God, you will receive a just punishment. But the heavenly tabernacle teaches us more. Sorry, the earthly tabernacle teaches us more about the heavenly. There is another parallel. The fact that there existed, the fact that God uh, chose, God initiated this tabernacle shows that God desires relationship with his creatures, with his people. Otherwise, God would just stay separate, right? There, there would be, God wouldn't say, bother saying, I'm, build this tabernacle and it is where I will dwell among you. God would not 
have bothered to do that. We see that again in Exodus 25, 8. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exodus 29, 43. There, the tabernacle, I will meet with the people of Israel. This is the purpose of the tabernacle existing. Is that God can have a relationship with, with, with people, with his creatures, with even sinful as they are. This is, this is what, what the tabernacle means. And so the fact that there is a heavenly tabernacle must mean the same thing, that God desires relationship with people, sinful ones at that. This is something that we learn. God still today desires relationship. But next we see this, the priesthood, the need for God's mediator. So sin causes a separation, right? Sin deserves punishment, but God still desires relationship. Well, how can that be worked out? How, how can we have a relationship with God? How can we have contact with God? Well, God gave the priesthood, especially the high priest, in this earthly tabernacle. And we see the same thing in the heavenly. There is still today a need for God's mediator. And I put that word God's in there. I changed it this morning. I went back to that computer and I changed it from a mediator to God's mediator. Why? I'm not telling you just find some guru who will lead you to God. All way, all roads lead to God. It doesn't matter if you follow Buddha or Muhammad or whatever. No, God's mediator is what we need. God set up the priesthood. God anointed these priests and said, they can come into my presence. They can represent uh, Israel. And that's exactly what they did. God chooses uh, Aaron and his offspring to be the priest, Aaron as the high priest. And God uh, makes them holy. Again, I told you, I'll, I'll get to that one in a second. But the first thing we see is that, that the priests really represent Israel before God. Uh, I have that Exodus 28 verse 9. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel engraved in stones in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart. So he's to wear a breastpiece, a breastplate. It had stones on it, and the names of each of the 12 tribes would be engraved on it. It says, uh, when he goes into the holy place, to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. That, that is, he represents Israel before the Lord in a very real way. He is God's mediator representing Israel before God and God before Israel. Uh, we see this again, um, that God had made these uh, priests holy. And, and it is, it's quite explicit, actually, Exodus 28 36 to 38, God says, You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it, like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. It shall be on Aaron's forehead. It shall regularly be on his forehead, that they may be accepted before the Lord. And so there is this one who literally has a gold plate on his head that is being deemed as a type of holy one, that is able to enter not only to the holy place, but into the holy of holies to represent the people of God that they may be accepted before the Lord. The tabernacle teaches us, it gives us a frame of reference for understanding the heavenly reality that we sinful humans need a mediator, a God-given mediator between God and man. But not only that, we think about what the uh, priest was to do. They were to make animal sacrifices. And then this is, I mean, you read the book of Leviticus, and there is a lot of animal sacrifice going on there. Less so in Exodus, but it's still there, given in, in more summary form. Uh, but, but here's what I want you to understand. Even the high priest could not go into the holy place or the holy of holies without the shedding of blood. That, by the way, is what Exodus 29 is all about. I mean, there's all these uh, sacrifices and sprinklings of blood, blood that must be applied both to the altar and to the priest before they could serve as priests and before they could enter the presence of God. That The idea here is these animals were to bear symbolically as a type, right? Because we're looking at the copy they were to bear the sins of both the priest and then they could make offerings for the people. And those, those, those sacrifices for the people would 
in a substitutionary way, bear the sin of the people. So God is giving them a frame of reference for this. Uh, Exodus 29, 38 to 43, um, it says this. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs um, that a year old, so that's one year old lambs, day by day regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to, to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel. So God says, every single day you have to, in the morning, offer a one-year-old lamb, and then again at twilight, in the evening, you have to offer a lamb, and you, you bring it there before the tent of, of meeting, and then he says there, uh, I, will, I, will, I will meet with you there. I will speak to you there. That's talking to the priest. And then he says, there I will meet with the people of Israel. And that is through the priest, through the mediator. But blood must be shed. And uh, I, I want to mention this as well. Um, on that, that day when, when the, uh, the high priest, it'd finally be that day of atonement. Yom Kippur, he, he would... He would be offering all these sacrifices, all these cleansing. He would go through all these uh, rituals. And, and, but then Leviticus 16 uh, tells us that they w- he would not only sprinkle the blood on the altar of incense, which was uh, less normal, but then he would enter in with fear and trembling into that holy of holies. And there he would sprinkle the blood of a ram, that's a, a male lamb, onto the mercy seat. And, and, it's, and it says there in, in Leviticus 16, there I will make atonement. That is a substitutionary sin-bearing, wrath extinguishing there on the mercy seat. And so the picture here that we see in the copy, in the, the earthly tabernacle, is you have the law with its judgment, or the, the ark holding the law, you know, with, with God's judgment and wrath and sin-deserving punishment and separating mankind. But then you have the mercy seat. It's between God's presence and the law. And you have blood sprinkled on that mercy seat to to bear the punishment. And so the, the picture is, under that law, the people stand condemned. All people stand condemned before God. But it was that mercy seat, the blood of that sacrifice, that sin bearing substitute sprinkled on the mercy seat that God could make atonement and meet with them there. He could be their God. They could be his people and not be destroyed. This is the similarities of what's going on. We're going to see some of those similarities tie back in uh, here in a moment. But, you know, we, we think about this and you say, well, if, if the earthly tabernacle is, is a copy of the heavenly reality, well, that stinks. I mean, don't get me wrong, for Israel, this was amazing. Th- th- this tabernacle, I mean, this was new. God was not generally dwelling among his people. This was a brand new thing, that there could be a dwelling place, that there could be a way of, of sacrifice, that there could be these God-ordained mediators, that there could be a way of, of God meeting with them. And, but you say, but is that all I should now expect to experience if it's a copy is, is that, that my relationship with God is going to happen through over and over and over again, sacrifices day in, day out. Then the one big one on the, on the day, uh, day of atonement, like that's what my, my relationship with God should consist of. And, and, and my, as far as meeting with God and talking with God and hearing from God, it has to happen through like a priest. Like it has to be vicarious. You know, we laugh about living vicariously through other people. Right, and, and we, we say, well, that's lame. Go out and do it yourself. Like, go, go out and adventure. Like, quit watching YouTube videos about hiking. Why don't you go on a hike, you know? Th- this is what Israel was forced to do. They had to live vicariously through the priest, through his experience, as he represented them before God. They couldn't actually go in there into God's presence. They couldn't actually have these conversations with God. They couldn't even offer their own sacrifices. And we'd say, well, if it's a copy then that doesn't sound very great. <laughs> like that doesn't just make my heart say, yay, this is what we should expect to experience. Well, as I told you at the beginning, 
when we see types in the Bible, we not only look at the similarities, we look at the differences. And because the reality is always better than the picture, we have this. Oh, I don't know where I'm at now. How did I get there? No idea. (laughs) Yeah, here we go. We have the superior reality. So we have over here the copy, the earthly copy. We've seen the similarities, but now we need to look at the superior reality. And this is where things get really exciting because now we have a frame of reference for understanding the heavenly reality. We know that sin separates, that sin deserves punishment, but that God desires relationship. We've seen that it has to happen through a mediator. We've seen that there has to be sacrifice. But the heavenly reality is infinitely greater than the earthly copy. And this is what I want to show you. I, by the way, just want to read this, how the author of Hebrews talks about it. He says, they serve as a copy and shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that's shown to you on the mountain. But as it is, this is what what I wanted to show you, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For the first covenant had been faultless, if it had been sufficient, and if it had been great or ideal, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. This is what he's saying, like, if, if, the, if the earthly tabernacle were, were ideal, that that's the way God wanted to do redemption and do uh, relationship with his people, then we'd still have an earthly tabernacle. Or maybe the temple that the tabernacle later became, but he didn't. That one's gone. The, te- the, the temple even was destroyed in 70 AD. But there is a superior reality that we now have in Christ. Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more Excellent. And so now, let's look at the differences. The superior reality. The first difference, I hope you can read that, is that Jesus is our everlasting mediating high priest. So anyway, we'll we'll read these. I got got to move fast. Instead of it just being normal guys within the, the, the lineage of Aaron, Jesus is our everlasting mediating high priest. We see in Hebrews 7, uh, 23 to 25, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in service. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. He lives forever, you could say. 25, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. You see that? Like, he is that priest. He is that God-ordained mediator. Jesus is, and he lives forever. We could go into so many more reasons that that's awesome, but that's what I got to stick with for the moment. The next difference I want to show you is this. I I hope I've got it right. Yep. Our eternal mediating high priest, Jesus, offered a once-for-all-time sacrifice. Instead of one in the morning, one in the evening, then all the thousands, hundreds of thousands of that people would bring their own sin offerings and things like that. Jesus made a once for all sacrifice. See, here's the issue with the earthly tabernacle and, and, and the, the, the offerings there, the sacrifice there. Hebrews 10, 1 through 4, it says, Since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, Instead of the true form of these realities, that's talking about the the law, the the Ten Commandments, the the tabernacle and all that. It's just a shadow. It says there, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. It can never make perfect those who draw near. Verse 4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. They could not truly do it. Uh, we see again um, Hebrews 10, 11, and 12, 10 verses 11 and 12. 
It says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But look at this, verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. When you, when you think about Christ seated at the right hand of God, that should mean something to us. And, and the, the tabernacle is teaching it to us. Because the, the earthly tabernacle, they had to stand daily, continually making more and more sacrifices. The, these, these substitutionary sin uh, offerings, the, these animals, but they could never fully, completely, actually make them right. It could never truly take away sin. But Jesus made one sacrifice once and for all, and then what does he do? He sits down at the right hand of God. He sits down on the mercy seat. That is what happened. And you say, well, if the, if the blood of bulls and goats don't, can't truly take away sin, then how is Jesus sacrifice perfect? How can he just sit down? How is his work of, of redemption finished? Well, Hebrews 7, you see here, yep, <clears throat> Hebrews seven twenty six. for it is indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy and innocent, unstained, so remember that, the high priest is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. This is the main idea. The, those priests of old, those mediators of old in the earthly tabernacle, they offered the blood of substitutionary bulls and goats and, and sheep. But Jesus offered himself. Jesus, the God-man, when God took flesh upon himself, he offered himself as a sinless, flawless, blemish-free sacrifice, and that paid the sin debt in full. It actually paid for it. Here's the way I like to think of it. In the tabernacle, the earthly tabernacle, it was like paying interest on a loan. If you, ever, if you only pay interest on a loan, I hope you guys know this, if you only pay interest on a loan, your credit card statement or uh, whatever, if you only pay interest, how long will it take you to pay off that debt? You'll never pay it off, right? If you only pay the interest, that's what the, the tabernacle, what those offerings were. It was just keeping things from getting repossessed, basically, um, if you think of it in that way. It was just keeping things okay for a while. But when you actually pay the debt, then you're clear. That is what Jesus did in the heavenly tabernacle. He doesn't just pay interest like the blood of, of bulls and goats could do. He pays the sin debt actually. That's what Jesus did on the cross. He bore the wrath that we deserve on the cross as the mediator. And his blood, instead of the blood of a ram, his blood is sprinkled in the heavenly mercy seat. That means the law is there. Yes, God is still uh, just and righteous and holy, but we have the blood, the perfect blood of the lamb. We have Jesus, the lamb who was slain, sitting on that mercy seat. Our sin is taken care of, truly paid in full in Christ. This is far better, far superior to the earthly tabernacle. But the earthly tabernacle gave us a frame of reference. But the difference helps us to appreciate what has happened. Jesus has actually paid for our sins. Now, I, I know I'm running out of time, but this is something I, I want us all to get. Because that's just salvation so far that we've talked about. That's it. How you get in, you know, <laughs> into the Christian club, whatever. Okay, Jesus has made that sacrifice once for all time, once for all sin, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He has ro risen and seated at the right hand of God. That's salvation. But you, again, you think about the experience of Israel and 99.999999% of Israel still had no access to God. Only the high priest, only once a year could they go 
in. So for the lifetime of that high priest, while he was able to serve, I think 30 years and up, I, I believe, um, like for that, that period of time, like he was the only guy that could go in there and only once a year. Then, then he dies, and the next person, that out of all the millions of Israelites, he's the only one that got to do it. And we say, oh, so I'm, I'm in, but like I still have to do this, this, this separation thing, this vicarious thing, this mediator thing. Well, here is, is what we have in the heavenly tabernacle. And I want you to get this so bad. Yes, you still have a mediator. Yes, there is still a sacrifice. But instead of that mediator going in instead of you, that, that mediator invites you in. Through Jesus, we have access. Through Jesus, we have access. Now, we think about this first, <clears throat> not from the book of Hebrews, but Jesus. I want you to remember that the earthly temple in Jerusalem was just the replacement for the earthly tabernacle. That's all it was, right? They, they traveled around, wondered. They finally go in, conquer the uh, promised land. Uh, the tabernacle has a weird little history there, but ultimately it lands in Jerusalem. Solomon builds a temple. It is the replacement <clears throat> for the tabernacle. And so it is still the earthly picture of the heavenly reality in Jesus' day. Matthew 27, verse 50 this is Jesus on the cross, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. That's death, okay? Verse 51, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And then Hebrews makes it very explicit what that means. We uh, Hebrews 10, 19 to 22, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a, a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Please, if you get nothing else today, it's, we, we don't have the same experience as Israel of vicarious going before God. Of So how was it those who actually even had a personal relationship with the high priest, you know, talking to him about it, hearing about it? Jesus is our perfect mediator. He is our perfect sacrifice. And he says, you can come in by my blood. Like there's no other way you can come into God's presence. There's no other way you can be in the throne room of God where his glorious presence dwells. But if you come in by the blood of Jesus, we have confidence to enter the holy places. He has opened the curtain for us. He's the great high priest. Therefore, let us draw near. This is amazing. I said at the beginning, you could go into the throne room of God, the heavenly tabernacle, right now if you wanted to. What does that mean? I mean, like, well, do you drive there? Do you fly there? A rocket, maybe. You know, um, no, this is something that, that it is a, it is very real, just like the, the old earthly tabernacle was very real, but it is a, a spiritual reality. And Christ is seated there, so I assume there is some material thing going on because jesus has currently flesh and he's seated at the right hand of god and so but what we do is because we have the holy spirit within us right that's god within us we're the tabernacle of god and then because jesus our mediator is seated at the right hand of the throne of god we can always any moment of any day enter into god's presence through prayer through setting our mind on the things that are above not on the things that are below like we're, we're setting our things on, on the place where Christ is. That's what Colossians 3, I believe, says. Um, we, we, we go there in our hearts. This is uh, Brother Lawrence, uh, an old uh, theologian, called this practicing the presence of God. That, that we, we enter into his presence through the Holy Spirit with Jesus there as our mediator. We have a connection uh, we say, sang that, that the anchor holds behind the veil. Jesus is that anchor, that connection behind the curtain. That is Hebrews 6, I think uh, 19, something like that, that. That we have that sure and steadfast anchor for the soul behind the curtain. You have access by the blood of Jesus. And you can go there 
And, and, and I just think about my own prayers. I so often don't actually go there. I, I, I say some words to God and it's just, I barely give it a thought. But Christian, you have the opportunity to just go into God's glorious presence. You can talk with him. You can thank him. You can worship him. You can adore him. You can confess to him. You can petition him. You can go there and actually do relationship with God. Relationship with God the Father, through God the Son, because you have the indwelling Holy Spirit. But I, I gotta have, I've got one more thing I want to say to you. And I, I've been here so many times. I say, I know that place exists. I know there's a heavenly throne room. I know that God is there. I know that Christ is seated there. I know I have the Holy Spirit. But I, I can't go there right now. I mean, I, I've been here so many times. I, I can't go there because I haven't been in so long. You think about, you know, maybe you visit or a relative and they're like, about time you showed up. You know, it's been years since you, you know, came and visited me. We, we, we have this same mentality with God of like, well, if I go now, it's been so long since I've, I've entered that throne room. It's been so long since I've come into God's presence. Truly, sure, I've thrown up some prayers, but I haven't really come spiritually into his presence. And so, so God's just going to, you know, berate me when I get there. I'm going to be embarrassed. I can't go there. I think I have that. Yeah, I, I, I can't go there. Now, another thing we might say is, is not just has there been a lot of time that has elapsed since the last time I entered God's presence, but a lot of sin as well. Like, you know, we have these seasons, and maybe some of us, it's our whole experience. We say, man, I love Jesus. I've trusted in him for salvation. I, I want to please him. I want to know him. But I still struggle with sin so much. I still get stuck in these patterns, these ruts of sin. I, I make myself so unclean, so, so dirty, there is no way I can enter the presence of God like this. And again, we waste our time trying to clean ourselves up. And it never works. You'll never be clean enough to enter God's presence if, if that's the, the criteria. And you certainly won't even have the power to fight the sin this is what Jesus says. If it's been a long time since you've entered his presence in your heart through the Holy Spirit, this is what Jesus says. If you've been struggling with sin, you say, I can't go in there. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He, by the way, passed through the heavens by ascending up to God the Father in his resurrected body. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Friends, you, you think God just looks down on you and says, how could you? You did it again. How, how, why are you so weak? Why are you such a failure? That is not what's going on. We have a high priest who has felt the pressures of this sinful world. Every type of temptation has been pressed upon Jesus. He knows how difficult it is. He knows what it's like to live in a cursed world. He knows what it's like to live in a weak human body. That's what he did on Christmas. He took on a weak human body while remaining divine he's experienced our weaknesses therefore he can sympathize with our weaknesses yet he did it without sin therefore he can stand as our high priest our great high priest and so we have verse 16 let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need that's what you need. If, if you struggle to enter the presence of God, what you actually need is to enter the presence of God because that's where the mercy is. That's where the grace is. That's where the help is. That's where it comes from. You say, I've got this pattern of sin and I don't even want to let go of it. How could I go before him? Well, go to him. You, you need help. You need mercy. You need grace. That means you must go before him and you can go before him because you have a perfect high priest who sympathizes with you, 
you have a perfect sacrifice, the blood of Jesus that covers all your sins, past, present, and future. He's ready. He is there to work with you. And that means God the Father, by the way, looks at you clothed in the righteousness of Christ. When you walk into that room, when you enter spiritually the presence of God, he doesn't look at you and say, you again. He looks at you clothed in the righteousness of Christ. He loves you with the same love that he has for Christ. This is what we have in the new, not new because it was always there, but the, the heavenly tabernacle with our new high priest. It is far superior to the old. We've seen the similarities, but the differences, that's where the beauty is. We got a frame of reference, but now we have this beauty. We have this glory that we can take hold of each and every day. Because it is so late, I'm just going to pray. Father God, help us even now to quiet our hearts. And if we've trusted in Christ, if we've been covered by his blood, help us to enter into your presence, Lord. Help us to not be ashamed of our weakness, our frailty, our sin, but to go in not brashly, not, not proud, but confident in Christ. Confident in your love for us. Confident that we are clean in your sight. And confident that you will meet us with mercy and grace. God, we're there before you now and we need your grace. We need your mercy because we are people who too often neglect this heavenly tabernacle. We're afraid to enter. God, help us to look at Jesus, the perfect mediator, mediator, the perfect sacrifice that you have set up. And God, to know that this door, this curtain is always open to us, always open to, to feel your presence, always open to, to, to come to you with thanksgiving and worship and always open to confess our sins, to receive mercy, to find grace and help in time of need. Oh God, we need you. We need your presence. We need your grace. Would you please help us to remember this hev heavenly tabernacle exists and there you want to meet with your people. And there you want to change your people. God, would you do it in us? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What do you think, Douglas?